And I'm McKenna. And together we're the Daily Profcast. We're two long-distance besties who share a love of Harry Potter. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Daily Profcast. Today we're going to be looking at chapters 27 through 30. Yeah. We're getting all the way up to right before the third task and all the chaos associated with that. As I was reading, I was realizing like we're actually in the back half of the book now, which is really exciting. Like we've crossed the threshold. It's felt like forever. It, this but, is like a not really in a bad way. Book. Not in a bad way. Yeah, I, I haven't like lost interest. There's a lot of interesting things about this book that I did not realize, like how much um, backstory it gives us. And I never, I guess, because my association to the Goblet of Fire is so much about the movies, I never before realized how much backstory was in in these yeah yeah like i said before like this book isn't one that i went back and reread as frequently as like prisoner of azkaban or sorcerer's stone yeah we're it's getting real it's getting so good it's getting we're learning a lot about the first wizarding war which you know makes me happy right and it's sort of unexpected like you really wouldn't like i would not have before connected goblet of fire to the first wizarding war in terms Mm -hmm. of you know, like the facts you get, you so much more associate that to Order of the Phoenix, but we are getting so much foundational knowledge. Right. Particularly in chapter 30 in the Pensieve. Yeah. Harry learns a lot of kind of earth shattering things. Right. And I feel like just every chapter was just a lot of like so much red herrings and just like mystery. And we're just like building up so many potential bad guys. And it's Mm -hmm. just really good. So good. Shall I'll we give jump it in? to the author. She wrote this book well. Yeah. Uh, shall we jump in? Yeah. Let's do it. So chapter 27 is Padfoot Return. Oh. So after the second task, we basically open up to hear that everyone is really curious about what happened at the lake, which means Ron is, you know, much more in demand as a, sorry, yeah. Sorry. What are you chewing on? Yeah, so we're seeing, so Ron is getting attention, which is very fun for him. It's just like we saw after, you know, we thought Sirius Black came and attacked him in the last book and the school's kind of buzzing and trying to ask him what happened. So yeah, he loves it. This has always been, you know, the thing that, that Harry gets without having to try that Ron like desires. So when he gets a little bit of like attention and fame like this, he really likes it and we see Um, that his story gets more wild with each retelling and then i love that hermione just shuts him down and she says to him that the only way he could have battled the mer people is if he had snorted them and he backs off and like goes back to the more truthful telling of the story it just their relationship is developing and it's very cute yeah he it's like playing telephone have you ever played telephone where you're sitting in a group of people and one where one person like whispers now mind you this is just ron playing but like one person whispers something in somebody's ear and then the whispers continue a- around the room and then the very last person has to say what they think the message was and it's always like completely different yeah that's like sort of what's happening and then rita skeeter strikes again with another article this time about harry's supposed you know paramour Hermione Granger. (laughs) Right. And the way this kind of all unfolds in the book is really sad to me. So it gets put out in Witch Weekly. And Pansy Parkinson is like laughing with the other Slytherin girls at Hermione's expense. And it's just, it's so 
sad, I guess. And just, I don't know. I don't no, like the, it. I don't like the bullies of the girls. No. And it's like, I mean, it's really easy to write in like a bunch of girls like hating on each other. That's like an easy thing to write into fiction that I don't always love that we have like conditioned ourselves to believe that like girls will always fight against each other and never like support each other instead. And um, it's sad because Hermione gets all the like the fallout from the article. And right. Not but really she's but she's right it is Hermione and not Harry Hermione starts getting hate mail in a later chapter but she's like not that phased no very mature she sees this article and she laughs it off and she's sincere about it she's like she's and I think she's you know laughing at how ridiculous this adult woman is for going after a, a 14 year old girl for a scoop she's like like you seriously have nothing better to do this is so dumb now she starts regretting it when she starts getting like some dangerous hate mail but but good for her for having the maturity to be like this does not phase me like this does not change who i am as a person it's not real anybody who reads this crap is like clearly delusional yeah i think it also just yeah hermione is obviously becoming way more confident in who she is and i love that for her yeah it's also sort of funny that in that potions class where she reads the article they're using scarab beetle as an ingredient and they're crushing the scarab beetle as the potion ingredient very funny i love that yeah i i I made a note of that too it was really cute so they it's march now at hogwarts and there is some delays in the owl post because of the weather obviously when it's really windy and cold hard for the birds to be flying but Friday before a Hogsmeade weekend, Harry receives a letter from Sirius and he asks him to meet him that weekend in Hogsmeade. And Harry is concerned, obviously, I think excited, but concerned. And I think it just shows the kind of first time I read through this, I was like, wow, just shows Sirius's commitment to Harry that he's really willing to put himself at you know, in personal danger to be there for Harry. And then upon a second thought, I was like, well, Sirius loves to put himself at any time. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a death wish. He's like a reckless human. Yeah. He's like the motorcycle driving crazy. Like that's just who he is. So, and Ron kind of astutely makes an observation like, well, it's a lot safer for him to come to Hogsmeade now because there's not Dementors flying everywhere looking for him. So Mm -hmm. really quick before that, at the end of that potion class, we get our first little look at Veritas Serum. Snape is threatening Harry with it and saying, like, if you ever steal my potion ingredients again, Harry's like, I'm not stealing your potion ingredients. He's like, you did it once before. I know you're like, you're stealing po- polyjuice ingredients. And Harry's like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm not. And he's not. Who's doing it is Bertie Crouch Jr imposter moody and then karkaroff comes in at the end and is like showing snape something on his arm right which will become more significant again in a couple of chapters but yeah i think very very bold to do so in front of a classroom of students students had left by that point the bell had rung and harry like spilled something on purpose to stay in so he was like cleaning under his desk yeah but bold to do it like in a classroom at all like right after yeah like do they not notice you'd think they would be more careful about their surroundings right i also had another question going into what you were saying about them going to hogsmeade to see sirius it says they like it's a friday and then like after classes they go into hogsmeade i don't remember that like being a thing i thought they would like go in on saturday 
I didn't know you could go Friday after class. Yeah, I think uh, that was new for me too. And I, what I'm guessing is that it's a Hogsmeade weekend. So you have free access through the entire weekend. So I guess Friday after class, you're free to go. Sometimes. Maybe people like meet their parents in Hogsmeade and stay at the inn and like have a weekend off campus. Maybe that's a possibility. I think, oh, am I mixing this up with family? I think that is cute. Yeah, love that. Great if you have parents. Great if you don't have parents. <laughs> Not great if you don't have parents. And if your godfather is a wanted fugitive, it makes it a little complicated. But uh, you can still meet him in Hogsmeade, apparently. So they go into Hogsmeade. They're on a little quest to get socks for Dobby. Thanks so to thank cute. him for all his help during the second task. And then they see this black shaggy dog. Right. And the dog, aka, I think we know, it's serious, Badfoot. And he leads him. Snuffles, if you will. Snuffles, yeah. The dog, like, serious, leads them all the way up to this cave in the mountainside. I love the, like, imagery of them just, like, hiking behind Sirius, like, getting up there. That song has been in my brain nonstop. Thanks to Yeah, I've been singing the Castaway song, like, also that. Mike hates it so much. (laughs) So inside, we see a familiar friend. Buckbeak is there, all tethered up. The dog transforms transforms into Sirius and you know they get to talking as Sirius like tears apart his chicken that uh... yeah they brought him a bunch of food because he's been living off rats in this cave he like goes into town as a dog and like tries to get scraps from people but it's it you know when you're actually a grown man it's very hard to like sustain yourself and feed yourself when you're living in a mountainside cave and you can't like really go out as a person it says that he's still in his Azkaban clothing like he hasn't changed out of it is that that he yeah. couldn't find a single other change of clothes yeah. the good news is he's a little bit he's not quite as slim his face is a little more filled out like he's looking like he's a little healthier but he's yeah he's still in his azkaban clothes and he's been living off rats not a great time but that's how much he cares about being close to harry right and yeah it, it's very sweet and so they get to talking about you know, all these sort of mysterious events that in Harry's letters as he's writing to Sirius is making Sirius become more and more concerned. And it's yeah, kind Sirius, of- Sirius, like, often, I like his role in the series as, like, the one that gives us the insight into the past, into the first Wizarding War, into the Marauder's time at school. Like, he's often our source of that information. And, like, you know, we didn't have him before the end of book three, And we just know so much more with him, like, as a character that we are friends with now, which is cool. I will say one thing he says is like, oh, you guys in Dumbledore are the only ones around here that know that I'm an Animagus. That rules out Remus being there, visiting him. Sorry, Wolfstar stands. He's not there with him. (laughs) Yes, it is sad. You would think they would be kind of like working as a team right now, if, you know, romantically or not. Right. And so this conversation takes a pretty interesting turn because they start to kind of, Sirius asks more prodding questions into the Wizarding World Cup, into the Quidditch World Cup, which happened obviously the previous, you know, that summer before. And Sirius sort of, he's pondering why Bagman wants to help Harry win the tournament. Is there something potentially kind of sinister there? And he also tells the trio that Crouch used to head the Aurors, and it was Crouch and those Aurors that sent him to Azkaban without a trial. 
And he says that Barty Crouch Sr., he championed using more forceful measures against suspected death eaters to achieve results. And he was sort of willing to cut some like ethical and moral corners to, you know, figure out who is guilty and and really push to see who is guilty. And it's very interesting once we kind of, then Sirius gives us more backstory about Barty Crouch Sr. And we learn that there's also a Barty Crouch Jr. And what happened to him? This political intrigue from this period of wizarding history makes me so happy. Not because it's happy, but because I'm just so, I'm fascinated by it. So Barty Crouch Sr. was gunning for the position of minister at the end of the war. And he, like you said, he was really tough. Yeah, he was really tough on Death Eaters. And he's the one who authorized Curse to Kill, which gave Aurors the ability and the license to use unforgivable curses to defend themselves against Death Eaters and to round up Death Eaters. And he just, he was like an advocate of like, do whatever you can to either kill them or bring them in. Like, I don't care. I just want them gone. I sort of liken it to the war on crime politicians touted in the late 90s and or late 80s, early 90s or Mm -hmm. all through the 90s. And when we see like a big rise in America of people incarcerated for, you know, very like smaller offenses. And I just think it's a interesting parallel to kind of what Barty Crouch Sr. is doing. And of course, it's sort of overcompensating, right? Because it's almost like he had to prove extra hard that he was tough on crime and tough on death eaters because his own son was a death eater. Right. And And was tried for it. Right. And from public speculation, they were, well, was his son really a part of that? And Sirius was like, we'll never really know. Like he caught wind of it and he immediately sent him to Azkaban. He like washed his hands of him. And Um, then we learned that, you know, Crouch... Barty Crouch Jr. and his wife go to visit Barty Crouch Jr., who is on his deathbed in Azkaban. And Sirius says that a he- A year later, right? Yes, a year later. And Sirius says he saw the Dementors burying him. I thought it was interesting because I wouldn't think that the Dementors are like build a hole and bury a person type. Probably just, yeah. Yeah, that is sort of weird. And it's probably just for necessity, not because they're like trying to be respectful of the dead. You know? Right, but- like it just feels like you would need like hands and an opposable thumb to do that. I, I just do, funny. but I just see them as like Can they things. I don't know. Yeah, that is creepy. Characters not like out there with the shuffles, like digging a hole. I don't yeah, know. That, is, that actually that is kind of weird imagery. You're right. I and didn't so Sirius kind of makes an astute observation that Crouch has lost so much. He's lost his son. He's lost his wife, who died shortly after that trip, and he's lost his shot at Sir, Yeah, he kind of got demoted after his son was found out to be a Death Eater. It, it like blew his chances of being minister. Right. He's sort of pushed into the International Magical Cooperation Department, mm-hmm. which is, I find so interesting because Percy is so proud to be working for Crouch in that department. And it's all of Percy's identity. And that is probably like such a shameful thing for Barty Crouch Sr. And it probably annoys the in crap out of him yeah. how like peppy Percy is. Per- about- so serious, you know, thinks... Sirius's theory at this point is that Crouch, Barty Crouch Sr. is trying to revive his career by capturing, you know, a high profile, one last dark wizard. So yeah, we get this sort of off topic. We get that great quote from Sirius. Where is it? Sirius says, if you want to know what a man's like, take a good look at how he treats his inferiors, not his equals. 
Which is a little bit weird because in the next book, he's not very nice to Creature. No. Um, at all. Anyway, but, but um, it's a great quote. We have our first mention of Bellatrix Lestrange. Yeah. Okay. Th- I want to talk about this because. Does this... Sirius introduce her as his like cousin? Does he no. mention that? No, That's what this... I thought. So this is really weird. I think the author like later decided what she was going to do with Bellatrix and like her relations because the way she's brought up in this section is very strange unless I mean you could argue that like maybe Sirius doesn't want to say like oh yeah and by the way she's my cousin and that he's just like sort of distancing himself from her because he never tells Harry that Narcissa's his cousin either no and he like he knows Harry has beef with Malfoy right so what he's talking about is let me find it he's just he's we're on the topic of death eaters right and snape is meant or snape sirius is mentioning like yeah so all those people that that became death eaters were like my classmates at school i know all of them and who does he he mentions rosier and wilkes he mentions um, rosier and wilkes bellatrix he's talking and about, her husband and right, avery He's talking about what came to be known as in canon as Snape's gang of Slytherins. So it's like the Slytherins that Severus Snape hung out with when he was in school. And this makes, you know, you think about it and you're like, well, you know, these people are so adamant about being a pureblood. Like why, how did Snape fall in with this group? We found out like later from the author's later writings that one of Snape's first friends at Hogwarts was Lucius Malfoy who was like maybe a sixth or seventh year when Snape got there his first year, but he sort of recognized his talent and became friends with him. And probably like this probably like allowed Snape to make friends with like the more notable pureblood Slytherins in his house. And he sort of fell in with this group that included Mulciber, Avery, Rosier, Wilkes, and then Rodolphus Lestrange. The author mentions Bellatrix in here but then later on the Black Family Tree made Bellatrix's birth year 1951, which would make her 10 years older than Snape and the Marauders, far out of Hogwarts by that point. I think that was a mistake on the author. Like, I think she hadn't decided, like people argue this all the time. They're like, was Bellatrix at school with them or was she not? I think she like hadn't decided what she was going to do with Bellatrix's character yet. Probably just liked the name, knew she was going to make her an evil person. And then later like developed this whole storyline for her because it's really weird that he brings her up as a part of this group, like this school group from the Marauders era. Right. It has always bothered me. Yeah. And there's just so much vagueness in this So another thing that kind of bothers me about this interaction is, you know, Sirius says that all of those aforementioned people were accused as Death Eaters. Snape, however, was never accused. Then Harry kind of launches into, see, you know, saying Snape and Karkaroff, now we know Karkaroff, known Death Eater, definitely know each other. And he mentions how Karkaroff showed Snape something on his arm. And Sirius doesn't know what that would be. And I find that, I guess, a little puzzling. Because, like, in my head about what I think the first Wizarding War was like, I am sure that they squared off, like, in duels, you know, with... Battles. Right, battles, yeah. Yeah. it feels like the Death Eaters are such show-offy people that like most certainly like somebody would have shown off their death mark and I'm like 
certain that the order would have known about it. And so I, I just, yeah, I find it hard to believe that like, even when Death Eaters got, so, okay. So about the dark mark, it, it says that Voldemort had about like 500 or so followers. I actually don't remember if that's first or second war, but if we're going to make, if we're going to say that like, maybe he gained the same amount of a following, well, they he had like serious... 500 Death Eaters, but only like the top ones in the inner circle got marked with the dark mark. I find it hard to believe that like, you know, there were Death Eaters who definitely had the Dark Mark who got captured and put in Azkaban at the end of the first Wizarding War. You don't think they would like notice that at the ministry and be like, hey, if you see anybody with this tattoo, they're a part of a supremacy group and like, please turn them in. Like you would think that would be public and Sirius would certainly probably know about it. I'm telling you, I think she wrote this chapter and like was not thinking about his own mother yeah. had the Dark Mark. Like probably. No, I think we know. I think we know that Regulus was like in the inner circle and then he left. I mean, I think yeah. that we find that out later. Yeah. But like, I, I just find it so unbelievable that Sirius would not know about the Dark Mark. Yeah. And the, yeah. And just, I don't know that like. Everything we know about the Death Eaters is that they're terrible at keeping secrets. Like they're really bad at it. <laughs> yeah. But this is also like, you know, this is like music to almost music to Ron and Harry's ears that they're hearing about this like awful thing that Snape was a part of now or like you know that he's now no longer a part of but was a part of and they're like oh I knew he was they're like I knew he was awful Dumbledore wouldn't have hired him if he was right and we already kind of had established like Karkarov could be bad and he could be meddling right like that's kind of the first like Mm -hmm. red herring Mm -hmm. then it was like okay well Karkarov was talking to Snape so we already know we don't like Snape and Harry have a bad history together. So maybe yeah. it could be Snape. Now we've just had it confirmed. Snape hung out with Death Eaters. Like he ran in that crowd, though not ever officially accused. And we've also learned that Ludo Bagman is like Harry's trying to figure out what, or Sirius is trying to figure out what his angle is in all of this. Mm-hmm. And so I just feel like, you know the author's lazy in so many things in the way that she writes and some of these stories are just not well connected to other details in the book but what she does get really right in this book is setting up like all these almost false narratives that could be possible yeah like leading us in the wrong direction to give us a plot twist right and it leads you to wanting more so i'm just back on this mention of bellatrix it's so i'm telling you i don't think she knew what she was gonna do with this character yet or like so it says, Sirius held up his fingers, began ticking off names of Slytherins who eventually all turned out to be Death Eaters. Rosier and Wilkes, they were both killed by Aurors in the year before Voldemort fell. The Lestranges, they're a married couple, they're in Azkaban. That's it. Yeah, and I just feel like Sirius is such an honest guy. I just feel like he would have been like, yeah, my awful cousin and her crazy husband, like, they're Death Eaters. I just feel like he would admit it. I don't think he's somebody who's shy about those kind of things. I'm also surprised in this interaction, he doesn't ever mention about Regulus either. Yeah. Yeah. It's his, that's another thing that I don't know when she developed that she wanted to write about Regulus or, you know, you could argue like you could give the Watsonian argument that like Sirius is ashamed to be related to somebody who became a Death Eater or like, I don't think Sirius, like Sirius never knew that Regulus was trying to stand up to Voldemort and like do something that would harm him. Sirius never knew that Siri- let Regulus like had this redemption. So I think he thinks his brother died like being a Death Eater through and through and like just doesn't want to have anything to do with him, which is 
heartbreaking. I um, think uh, Regulus trying to destroy the locket was a fourth quarter Hail Mary pass at the... Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Cool tidbit. I love it. Regulus, one of my probably like favorite characters to ponder about, but... Yeah, same. Anyway. Yeah, so it's very... Th- this whole chapter is very interesting. It gives us a lot of insight into history, which is directly affecting events taking place now in like Harry's world. There's this nice mention about Moody because Sirius would have worked pretty closely with Moody in the first order of the Phoenix. And he's just sort of commenting, you know, Moody's pretty, how we know Moody now is through Barty Crouch Jr. But he's clearly playing a convincing role and like has really gotten down Moody's personality because nobody suspects that he's an imposter. So like, To people who know him, he's not acting out of the ordinary. So we can assume that Moody's character is really like this. And he's sort of rough around the edges, but Sirius mentions that he never killed anyone if he could help it, which is very honorable. It would be very easy for Moody to go out and just like kill a bunch of Death Eaters and just like be like, well, you know, I'm killing the bad guys, but it's honorable of him not to take the easy way out and to try and like, you know, capture people and have them go through due process. And I think that's something that Harry definitely learns from Moody. Right. Right. And it's, it's, again, it's very honorable. It's one of these things I love about Moody because he's so paranoid. He's so like rough around the edges, rough around the edges and just like adamant about being vigilant that it seems like one of, you know, it's, you know, you'd assume that he'd be kind of a crackpot and just like see something and like fire off of a cadaver. But he's very clearly very methodical, very like measured and compassion not maybe not compassion it's not the right word but he's got you know a moral code yeah i think he'd pretty much always rather see somebody brought to justice than to die right and i I, that's one of the things i love about moody and i love thinking about him as an order and an order member during the first wizarding war it it just makes me happy he's one of moody's one of my favorite characters moody and remus before um serious you know, takes them back down to Hogsmeade in his dog form. He kind of two final thoughts I think I have here is that he mentions that Bertha Jorkins did not have a bad memory as Ludo Bagman asserted in an interview with the Daily Prophet and that she was quite smart and always had a mind for gossip. And then he implores Ron to send an owl to Percy and ask for some more information about Mr. Crouch. And why he's like sick and not coming to work. And acting a little odd. Yep, which we're gonna see in the next chapter 28, The Madness of Mr. Crouch. I have to switch notebooks now. I have officially gone through my first whole notebook of notes for the podcast. It's all filled out. Goodbye. Goodbye, notebook number one. Hello, notebook number two. Where am I? So yeah, So so Ron sends that letter to Percy. Right. And they give Dobby his socks. Yeah, so cute. So cute. Harry gets some extra food from the kitchen to send to Sirius. And then we we see Winky again. So sad. She's filthy. She's drunk. Yeah, um, so we. this is our first time learning that Butterbeer is actually alcoholic. Right. It's, very, it's a very small percentage, so it doesn't affect... I, I would liken it to, like, I don't know, like kombucha has trace alcohol in it but, but it like affects- you're, you're allowed to drink kombucha as somebody who's underage it like doesn't affect you but it it affects winky we learn basically that the house elves are over hermione they you know they assert that happiness is serving a master is working and they continue to have no interest in being free 
much to her disappointment. We've talked about how problematic that is, so we don't need to talk about it again. You can listen in the earlier episodes, but the, the really important thing that we learned. So Hermione's trying to comfort Winky and, and she's honestly trying to talk her out of her sorrow. She's like, why are you upset? Like, you should be happy that you're free. Like, now that you don't have to do housework for Mr. Crouch. And Winky mentions, I didn't... Crouch, she's like, Mr. Crouch didn't have me doing housework. I was like helping him with other things. I keep his secrets. And Harry and Ron are, what? And then she like passes out drunk. So that's odd. We learn that Winky is keeping a secret for Mr. Crouch that she can't tell anybody. They try and get it out of her and she doesn't tell. Hermione Just... receives hate mail. People are sending Hermione letters being like, how dare you break the heart of the chosen one? <laughs> like in support of Harry, but very mean to Hermione. And some of them are physically dangerous. They contain, like one of them had tuber pus in it, which we know undiluted can like have negative effects on your skin. So she like got burns and boils from opening this letter with tuber pus in it and had to go to the hospital wing and like had her hands all bandaged up, poor girl. Who would send a 14-year-old girl hate mail? Do you have nothing better to do? I'm sure it happens. I'm sure there have been celebrities who have had to deal with that, but it's awful. Is this the is this the chapter where they get the Easter eggs? Or is that the next chapter? Easter eggs. Mrs. Weasley sends them Easter eggs and Oh, I don't oh, I don't know if I wrote down if that was this chapter or the next chapter. I it might be this chapter. I think it's this chapter. Oh, oh yeah, it is this chapter. It is this chapter. So um, Mrs. But Weasley. before that, they, we meet Nifflers. Oh, yes. They're doing Nifflers in Care of Magical Creatures. I forgot that we met Nifflers before we saw one on screen in Fantastic Beasts. And then Ron has this moment. Oh, so they're working with the Nifflers and they have a bunch of gold coins. And, they're, and Hagrid's like, let's have a little competition. Whoever's Niffler gets the most gold coins, I'll give like a little prize to. And we, Hagrid like looks at Goyle and is like, you might as well empty your pockets. And like, there's no use in stealing those coins because it's leprechaun gold and it'll disappear in a few hours. Like you're not taking anything of value. And Ron has this realization that he paid Harry a bunch of leprechaun gold for like paid him back for Harry getting him the omnioculars. And Ron has this realization like that gold disappeared. So I didn't, I never really paid you back. And Harry's like, you know, don't worry about it. I didn't even notice we were kind of running from a terrorist attack, like not a big deal, but Ron feels really awful about it. And he says this, he, they're like sitting at the table and he says, I hate being poor. And Harry and Hermione don't really know what to do. The chairman, I like, I wouldn't, if at 14, if a friend sat down and said, I hate being poor, I wouldn't know how to respond to that person. I'm not equipped to talk about that. And it's just, yeah, it's hard to see him, you know, I don't, it's, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's hard to see because like Ron's never said that before. His family's no, socioeconomic he's... position hasn't changed. He's never seen, and he's been annoyed with it before. Like the first year on the train, he's like, oh yeah, I can't get any snacks. I've got this crushed up sandwich. But now he's really starting to realize how wealth has to do with status in this world. And it's hard to see him reckon with that. Yeah. Just, it's sad. I also think Ron potentially realizes that Harry's fame is not fleeting in the same way where like Ron has a moment and then his moment's gone. You know, Harry's always having a moment. And I think naturally at 14 years old, you would also draw that to your best friend being rich. Yeah. Yeah. And he sees the two as connected. It's just, yeah. It's he's like growing up and starting to reckon with like 
economics and socioeconomic standing in society and like what that means when you have friends who like are not of that same socioeconomic standing and like disparities and he's like growing up and it's not all sunshine and rainbows all the time as it is for all of us when we grow up and realize things like this they moving on they speculate about rita skeeter and how she's able to hear all this stuff there's a funny bit where I don't remember if it's Hermione or Harry. They're talking about spy movies and they're like, maybe Rita Skeeter has you bugged, which is hilarious because she does, but literally she has them bugged. Like it's not a figure of speech. It's literal. They even ask Moody if he can see her like walking around under an invisibility cloak and he says he can't. So, cause he can see through invisibility cloaks as we've established. We also learn in this conversation when they're talking about, you know, her being bugged or her bugging somebody to get like her scoops, even though she's not on Hogwarts ground, supposedly that muggle gadgets in Hermione brings up this passage from Hogwarts, a history. And we learn that muggle gadgets and electricity goes haywire around Hogwarts because there's too much magic in the air. So there's no electricity at Hogwarts just to reiterate that. Cool tidbit. I like that in this interaction, Moody says to Hermione, like you would be a good or like the way you think through things is very good and intelligent it's so sad because like we we just come to love moody but it's not really moody but i think moody would also say that like i think real moody would say that to hermione too what makes me sad about moody is i think about kind of like the growing relationship the trio is going to have with him and they have all these memories of like great memories with moody and then they have to be like oh actually that wasn't you don't really remember that remember when we had tea in your office oh wait yeah and now comes the easter eggs I just, this makes me so sad for Molly Weasley because she's such a lovely person. And I feel like the author just wrote this in, in such an ugly way. Listen, every, yes. So, so this is this, this thing that we see from Molly and Ginny, particularly towards Fleur later. Now we're getting a taste of it with Hermione and how Molly is, you know, we find out that Molly reads Witch Weekly pretty religiously and has read this article and actually thinks that Hermione has like broken Harry's heart. And, you know, the, her, the author writing this idea of Molly and Ginny being pretty disparaging against other women is, you know, that's her version of feminism is like women acting like men and like being against other women. But it's also like, you know, if we're going to explain it, I love this Watsonian versus Doylean thing. If we're going to explain it the Watsonian way, this is Molly's character flaw. Everyone has you know, nobody's perfect. Everybody has flaws. And Molly's flaw is that she can get, you know, she's in a household with lots of boys and one girl, and she's raised a lot of boys and she can get very sort of catty towards women. It may, it does make me sad for Molly. You're right. And it's supposedly a trait that she's passed on to Ginny. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's, some people think this is a reason to hate Molly. I do not think that this is certainly a flaw but I don't think this is a reason to hate Molly. Oh, if we started canceling people for one bad thing that they did when they did, I mean, if they are otherwise a lovely and considerate and caring person rather than like correcting in love, like that would be bad. So I don't think this is a reason to hate Molly, although it is not her shining moment. No, it's really not. There is a mention in this chapter before we get to the part about the maze of an eagle owl yeah. flying through the sky. That's Voldemort's owl. We learn that later in the book. Oh, shoot. Oh, my gosh. I totally forgot about that. And that's how he's letting Imposter Moody know about what's happening with Crouch. These 
Oh my gosh, I completely forgot about that. And it's interesting, I read about these eagle owls, not the first time it's been mentioned in the series. Apparently, wealthy families have eagle owls. So the Malfoys have one, the Stranges have one. What does an eagle owl look like? I don't know. I had the same thought. I didn't get a visual. I'm going to get one right now. Eagle owl to Google images. Oh, it sort of looks like a, it looks like a horned owl to me. Is that another name for it? It's like a great horned owl. Maybe it's just the English name for it. It looks like the same owl. It definitely looks like a fancy owl. It's very fancy. It's mean. Fancy, fancy boy for sure. Very pretty. I forgot about the eagle owl. I completely See, we're gonna, forgot about that. We're going to hear about eagle owls. Like it, it's going to be a theme ongoing. Yes, yeah, so they're getting information about the third task from Ludo Bagman. They go down to the Quidditch pitch and it's covered in like sh shrubbery. And Cedric and Harry get kind of mad about it. They're like, what have you done to our beautiful Quidditch pitch? And Ludo Bagman's like, it's going to, they'll cut it down. It'll be back to normal right after the third task. Don't worry. This moment that Crumb has with Harry after this little meeting is very sweet. I'm, I'm always impressed by Victor Crumb. He's a very, I mean, we don't get to see so much of his like character in the movie. He's a gentleman. Like, he's a gentleman. He's like a, a really stand up guy. And he's not like there to, cause he's caught wind of this article about how Hermione is two timing Crumb and Harry. And he just, and he notices, you know, Harry and Hermione are best friends. They're with each other all the time. And obviously if Hermione had to like, I don't know why she would have to do this, but in a situation, if she had to pick between Crumb and Harry, I'm sure she'd ally herself with it. We don't need to talk. She, we don't need to like make comparisons or like put one above the other, but, but you know, Crumb notices she's always with him and he starts to wonder and he just pulls Harry aside and he's kind of sad. He's not like trying to fight Harry. He's not being like, I'll duel you for her honor. Like, but he's just like, you know, what's going on? I just want to be sure. Are you guys together? Like, do I need to step off? And Harry's like, oh, she's my best friend. Like, really, we're best friends. It's nothing. There's no romance there. And he's sort of, he's, Crumb's like, oh, okay. And he's sort of like, this like disappointment has suddenly lifted from him. But he, I just, I'm, I think I, what I find like, what's the word I'm looking for? What I find honorable about this interaction is like, you know, so often we see teenage boys like just try and fight each other over stuff like this, or at least in media, maybe not in real life, but, and Crumb's like, you know, I just want to like have like a civil conversation and find out what's going on. He's very mature about it. Well, I think it shows the difference between Victor Crumb at 18 and, and Harry at 14, 14 who's so mad at Cedric for dating Cho yeah. versus Victor, who's just so reasonable and so measured and even doesn't treat killed. Hermione like an object to be one. Whoa. Yeah. He's very, yeah. Yeah. I appreciate, I really appreciate Crumb. Did you know that there's a deleted scene from the seventh movie, the first one, where he's at Bill and Fleur's wedding and him and Hermione dance together? I have seen yeah. that on TikTok. Yeah. It's so cute. when Ron's like looking at them, like, you know, not very happy about it, but her and Crum are just buddies at that point. And they're like, it's really cute. I wish they'd kept it in. It is really cute. He's like got hair and anyway. And then their conversation gets interrupted by a very unsettled Barty Crouch senior looking the worst for wear, kind of muttering to himself, talking to trees there as if they're Percy, <laughs> giving Weatherby, Weatherby orders. We hear in this conversation that Crouch is having with this tree, because Harry and Crumb are sort of standing there very unnerved by the fact that, you know, it, it, Crouch looks like he wandered out of living in the forest for 
several weeks, which he probably did. And they're very nerved by the sort of state he's in. So we get to sort of hear him muttering to this tree for a second. And he mentions that his son got 12 OWLs, which is, I think, the most you can get. So Barty Crouch Jr. is clearly very smart. You would have to be to pull off the stunt he's currently pulling off. And I think um, even more importantly, we get just a glimpse of Barty Crouch Jr. was proud of his son and loved his son. And maybe it's not as cut and dry as Sirius maybe made it seem that he just locked his son away and that was that. Yeah. It's sad. It's sad to see him in this moment of madness where he's, you know, we don't know it. We're not supposed to know it, that he's cursed and like, you know, in this really confused state and he's not in his right state. It's just sad, I think. It's also like, like, it's disturbing to see when you watch somebody even if you're not like close to them in a family way, when you watch somebody you have met who you know is very like measured and structured. And I would argue that Crouch sort of has a stick up his butt and like is very like, you know, a stable, rational seeming person. And to see them like in a tizzy like this and like like having a sort of irrational moment like this, it, it the first like response the, the is being disturbed. It like disturbs you a little bit. It's one of those things you think about for a while after. You know what I mean? So Crumb totally and Harry agree. are sort of stunned. And then d- is it Harry who goes up to the, the castle to get Dumbledore? Yes, he goes up to the castle to get Dumbledore and leaves Crumb with him. And he find- he's like trying to get into the headmaster's office and doesn't know the new password. And he's just like trying random sweets. But Snape comes up and stops him and is having a little bit of fun, like preventing him from seeing Dumbledore. But Dumbledore comes down and they go back, they all go back to the forest and Crumb is on the ground having been stupefied and Bertie Crouch Sr. is nowhere to be found. Right. This is the first time we, and then Dumbledore mentions he wants to go get Hagrid, but he doesn't walk to go get Hagrid. We see him set, McKenna's like pointing and freaking out. I wish you guys could see. This is our first time we have ever seen a messenger Patronus, which I could geek about all day. This is particularly important to the two of us because Erin uses it in a particularly great way in her fan fiction. (laughs) But it's a very cool um, aspect of the Patronus charm, kind of building on what Lupin taught Harry the previous year. Yes. So backstory, I think I might have talked about this before, but I'll give the Sparknotes version if I can. We know about the Patronus charm from the last book and what it can do that you can have sort of an incorporeal or a corporeal form. And this particular sort of function of the charm is something that Dumbledore specifically developed for the First Order of the Phoenix. So a time when we would have seen it in the films, but it wasn't ever explained in the films, is in the in the seventh movie, 7.1, Deathly Hallows Part 1, when that ball of light from, I believe it's supposed to be from, it's not from Kingsley. I don't know who it's from that ball of light bursts into the wedding and starts talking to everybody. That's a, that's a messenger Patronus. You can make the Patronus charm. Yeah, it is. Is it Kingsley? Kingsley has an accent in order of the Phoenix and that whoever they got to speak through that Patronus on the voiceover was not. No, that's dumb. But so this particular function of the charm is specific to members of the order of the phoenix it's something dumbledore developed himself where you can cast the charm and you can speak through it when it appears to the person you want to send it to it is so cool it's like 
it solves the wizard problem of like not having the modern telephone. And it's particularly great because we know how hard the Patronus is to summon at all. Like even just to get your wispy light, it's difficult. So to be able to send a full blown message, that's next level. Yeah. I have theories on how you can do that and how he developed that to be able to happen. Um, None of them are canon. (laughs) They're just speculation, my own theories. I will talk about it someday if you want. But for now, let's move on. Very cool, though. This is our first time seeing the Messenger Patronus. So I just want to mention, there is a lot of stuff going on here behind the scenes that is important. Right, right. So one of my favorite movies is Clue with Tim Curry. Yes, I love that movie. And one of my favorite things about Clue is, like, at the very end, they go back and they explain, like, everything that was happening in the scene that you didn't see the first time that would have Explain it to us, McKenna. Right, so... We're eventually going to learn all of this thing, these things from Imposter Moody at the end of the book because villains love to monologue. But the owl, the eagle owl referenced earlier, is sending a letter to Imposter Moody notifying him that Mr. Crouch has escaped. Imposter Moody, as we know, has the Marauder's map so he can see as Barty Crouch Sr. appears on the grounds. Harry Potter then returns back to the castle to fetch Dumbledore which is like exactly what Imposter Moody needed to happen. He gets caught up being blocked by Snape, helpful to the cause. Imposter Moody then has time to run down to the grounds, probably under his own invisibility cloak, attack Crumb, kill his father, hide his father under the invisibility cloak, appear at the scene after doubling back, goes to look for Mr. Crouch, and then transfigures him into a bone and hides him in the Niffler pile. Crazy. And in the background of the scene, I'm just hearing the like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's and it, one of the, see, I did not like look into it to find out the actual series of events that happened. But I what I wrote down, because I couldn't remember all of that, was how did Moody get there so quickly? Because like Dumbledore and Snape get there and then Hagrid comes to go fetch Carker off to let him know that, you know, Crumb was stupefied, was stunned. And then Moody just shows up. I'm like, I know he has the map. Was he just like keeping an eye on it? Like, wh- how did he get there so quickly? Well, he was doing a bunch of stuff in the behind the scenes. Yeah, there was behind the scenes. There's this like, there's this little kerfuffle between Karkaroff and Dumbledore and Hagrid. Karkaroff sort of accuses Dumbledore of of some foul play with his champion getting stunned. like. He's like, you're trying to take him out of the running so one of your champions can win. Hagrid, as we know, does not stand for anybody defaming Dumbledore or like speaking ill about him. And he like grabs Karkaroff by the rough and like raises him up in the air. And he's like, apologize right now. And Dumbledore's like, put him down. <laughs> Stop. Hagrid, please. He actually, I there's, a, there's an exclamation point in the line. He like yells at Hagrid a little bit. He's like, Stop. Enough. Dumbledore is a weird pacifist for everything that he is. Yes. Yeah. It's just, it's this really interesting, confusing interaction. And then I wrote down Dumbledore legitimacy with owls. Did he like know something about Harry sending owls and comments on it? And I've just forgotten what it was. He knows that Harry has been in communication with Sirius. With Sirius, right. Because he's been in, but he, Harry like mentions, he's like, he didn't know how Dumbledore sort of knew about the owls. I guess it wasn't legitimacy. I guess it's because he's been talking to Sirius. Never mind. Should and we then, move on to the next the chapter? End of, yeah, oh. at the end of this chapter, Hagrid like sort of swears off Madame Maxime 
He's like, you're done with me? Well, I'm done with you and there will be no buying my affection back. <laughs> and honestly, good for him for having self-respect. Yeah, we love that. So chapter 29 and chapter 30, I think we can kind of talk about rolling right into each other because these chapters really yeah. flow. So chapter 29 is the dream and chapter 20, or chapter 30 is the pensive. Or as Snape would call it, the pensive. The pensive. He's using the Quick, Francaise. take them to the pensive. Pensive. Pon. He's using the French pronunciation. <laughs> Look at him being accurate. Or snobby. Whichever one you think. I'm wondering, with this whole thing with Bertha Jorkins, was the Triwizard Tournament the plot all along? Or like, the not the plot, like the plot of the book, like the plot from the other side all along? Or was it simply convenient to their sort of antics? No, I think it was the plot all along. Okay. And I think that's why Bertha Jorkins was taken specifically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because if we know anything about Voldemort, he loves some flourish. He's such a drama queen. He is a drama queen. He's literally a drama queen. His life, his mission would be so much more fulfilled if he could like be quiet about anything. Yeah. If he didn't have to like make such a production. You know what I mean? Yeah, would have done. Dumbledore would have been so much better off if he had sent him to the Wizarding Academy of the Dramatic Arts rather than Hogwarts. If Voldemort had let his followers kill Harry, like it (laughs) would have saved so much trouble. So many opportunities. So many opportunities. There's a mention of like Harry wonders if Snape is able to turn himself into a bat and fly around, which is actually funny because of Snape's ability to use unsupported mm-hmm. flight. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. he has those big billowy robes when he flies. That makes him look like a bat. Yeah. It's kind of a funny little Easter egg foreshadowing. It is. And then so so Harry's like, we need to update Sirius. What happened last night? Oh, Dumbledore tells him to wait to send any owls. That's what it was from the last. So, so Harry's like, we need to update Sirius. So they take an owl to or a letter to the owlery very early in the morning the next day to like update Sirius right away. And they see Fred and George talking about blackmailing somebody. And we're like, what? Fred and George are there sending an owl as well. George foreshadows Ron being made a prefect. Yes. And he's like, when you, he's like, you're starting because Ron's like, we heard you talking about blackmailing somebody and like, you shouldn't do that. He's like, what are you, Percy? Next thing we know, you're going to be a prefect. And Ron's like, no, I'm not. Yes, he is. Yes, <laughs> yes you he are. are. And then Harry ends up seeing Moody a little later and he starts giving Harry a little bit of insight into the obstacles that he's going to face in the maze because it is to Barty Crouch Jr.'s advantage for Harry to get through the maze successfully. So Harry's like, oh, he's trying to help me. And he's like hinting what he might face in the maze. Right. And it's interesting. Yeah. I feel like Barty Crouch Jr. played this so well to wait until this task. Yeah. So that Harry didn't suspect him of trying to help him too much along the way. Like it's all been so subtle so far. Right. And he's, and he says something like, is it him who says I'll be very surprised if he doesn't win? But he literally says, I'll be very surprised if he doesn't win. Which is like, what a plot. (laughs) For this wow, whole situation. Crazy, crazy. Yeah, considering the implications of like what he is going to do to the cup, the Triwizard Cup, and yeah, just like so creepy, so creepy. Sirius responds to their letter very quickly, and Harry, who has been this whole book like desiring like fatherly advice and like guidance, 
his first he's like turning into such a teen he's like who is serious to lecture me who is he to lecture me i'm like serious like harry you have been basically practically begging for somebody to lecture you this whole time yeah you can't have it both ways yeah yeah but it makes sense like harry's not used to harry like desires guidance when he needs it and is not used to getting like not that this is necessary disciplinary but like he's not used to receiving like loving discipline he's used to abuse he's used to abuse he's not used to your dad being like you know go to your room and think about what you did not that that's what Sirius is doing he's telling him to stay inside and be safe and harry's response is to sort of rebel a little bit and it makes sense coming from the dirt like since he came from the dursleys because that's often his response to the dursleys it's also too like look who's giving this information Sirius black trying to be like a dad figure is honestly hilarious to me sometimes he does it really well yeah and sometimes, sometimes he really he misses the mark yeah yeah 100 so they have a divination class yes and poor harry I guess he falls asleep because it's boring yeah and he has this terrifying dream yeah do you want to describe the dream a little he's bit? like seeing he's like watching something play out through i believe the eyes of an owl he says it's almost like he's riding this owl yeah so he's like watching this play out through the eyes of the owl which is interesting considering what's going to happen next book when he's able to see what happens to mr weasley at the ministry through the eyes of nagini like he he can like enter the consciousness of an animal which is kind of cool i mean it's not cool it's never like a good situation but kind of a cool thing that happens if you just take that and not you the know rest how of the like horrifying. people say left brain and right brain people yeah i find it like harry brain and voldemort brain and this is definitely oh, a voldemort yeah. brain situation yeah yep absolutely this terrifying dream and in the dream we, we somebody says like he is dead we hear somebody talking to that voldemort in the armchair that harry keeps seeing in his dreams and that person says he is dead we know that they're referring to Barty Crouch Sr. And Barty Crouch, is it Barty Crouch? No, it's Wormtail. Wormtail's reporting that Barty Crouch Sr. is dead. Harry doesn't know who they're talking about yet, but he wakes up in class. He's like on the floor screaming and he's like broken out into a sweat and everybody's like looking at him and he wakes up and he's like, and you know. Trelawney is yelling at him to tell her them the dream. She's like, let me interpret it for you. And he's like, I'm just, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to the nurse. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, he says he's going to go see Madame Pomfrey, but he goes straight to Dumbledore's office, which good move, Harry. Good decision to like go tell an adult. Finally, this is like the right decision. And it just makes me, Trelawney's a terrible teacher. If this happened in McGonagall's class, Harry would be right to Dumbledore. If it happened in Flitwick's class, Harry would be right to Dumbledore. Even if it happened in Snape's class, I think Harry would be right to Dumbledore. But Trelawney, she's just like, terrible she's a bad educator well, she's like this is my area of expertise she's trying to like use it to make her look good she is a bad teacher i mean she's never been a great teacher so this We've is the that. first time since the last summer harry's had this type of dream and after this like you were saying it's going to become much more common that he has these like very vivid dreams where he's essentially looking into the mind of voldemort in these like weird ways yeah so this takes us right into chapter 30 of the Pensieve. He goes up 
to he's trying to get into the to Dumbledore's office again and he's like (laughs) he's trying different like sweets and stuff because it was it cauldron cakes I don't know what the password that he knew from the previous year is not working because the password changes and he he is like just trying different wizard sweets and like guesses the right one and goes up but as he's ascending the stairs he hears a conversation taking place in the office and in there is fudge minister fudge and then and dumbledore and imposter moody yeah and he like kind of hangs back to both listen in and also like try not to be rude and virgin on their conversation fudge Um, is basically saying that he doesn't think dumbledore is correct about there being a connection between the disappearance of bertha jorkins and the sudden reappearance of mr crouch he also kind of reveals some prejudice against giants insinuating that madame maxine might have something to do with what's going on because she's half giant yep this is and this is not the first time that fudge is going to look at the optics of a situation and ignore the obvious and instead scapegoat it on someone else who is a better fit for like the media for something like this happening yeah this is just a perfect introduction to the entire situation with the ministry next mm-hmm. year. So Dumbledore, Imposter Moody, and Fudge leave to go investigate like where Barty Crouch went missing. Harry hangs back in the office and he has this encounter with the Pensieve. His first um, encounter with the Pensieve. His first encounter. And the Pensieve is sort of this stone bowl. And Harry looks into it and he is pretty much immediately transported into what he quickly realizes is a memory because he sees that nobody knows he's there and everybody is much younger. And we can't forget that this is not Harry's first time being sort of shoved into the memories of the past because he had the experience with Tom Riddle's diary right he was transported into memory so i think he understands what that feels like so he's he picks up on it pretty quick and the memory he's brought into is one of many trials that are happening and this one in particular is for igor karkarov and barty crouch senior mr crouch is presiding over the trial yes he's he at the time was the head of the Department Force. of Magical Law Enforcement, right. which means he was also presiding over the Wizengamot. The like, it's sort of like acts like both the wizard sort Supreme. of, yeah, it's, it's sort <laughs> and- of also like for Americans, our equivalent would be like, it's like both the Congress and the Supreme Court, like, like judicial. Wizard- yeah, yeah, yeah. Does, does Parliament, I don't think Parliament, English Parliament handles like judiciary judicial stuff cases? though. I, I tell us, I don't think so, but somebody tell us. That's like a separate like court system yeah, I think branches of government as well yeah i don't know I, anyway. I need to brush up on my english government anyway somebody else can tell us but yeah so he's in this trial with the wizengama that barty crouch is presiding over continue mckenna and we see essentially the trial of igor karkarov unfold so karkarov is trying to name other death eaters to hopefully get himself a reduced sentence he names some people who do you have all the names handy? I will it's find it. Rosier. He names Dolohov, all people who are either already captured or already dead. Mulsiver. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna find it right now. Um, and you know, they tell him, okay, we already knew about those people. 
So he then names Augustus Rookwood. Augustus Rookwood, who worked for the ministry. Was it Snape or Rookwood first? I don't remember. I'm sorry. I think it was Rookwood. And they say, okay, well, you're going to go back to Azkaban while we investigate that. And then he names Severus Snape as a Death Eater. This has to be shocking to Harry because this is the moment in which, like, his entire suspicions about Snape are confirmed. Though Dumbledore sticks up for Snape and saying that, you know, he since he turned sides, he really works for you know, the order now, and he was a spy and a double agent. Mm -hmm. And so this is the first memory in the Pensieve. Yes. And this does not play out like it does in the film where Barty Crouch Jr. is implicated at the end of this trial. Right. Yeah. This plays out totally. That's the end of that trial memory. I found the name. So he says Antonin Dolohoff, who is already in Azkaban. Evan Rosier, who is already dead. He was killed for resisting arrest when moody was trying to capture him and took a chunk of his nose with him but we do we see a younger moody who still has both of his eyes which is kind of funny which is how harry starts to deduce that he's not in the present rosier travers who helped it says travers he helped murder the mckinnons our first i think our first mention of marlene mckinnon's family sad yeah we only have she's only mentioned like three or four times in the books and then mulciber he specialized in the imperious curse forced countless people to do horrific things and then he says rookwood a note about mulciber so mulciber who he's talking about mulciber jr so there's a mulciber senior who went to school with tom riddle and mulciber jr who went to school with the marauders and he's the reason that a lot of death eaters were able to get off because he basically was like yes i imperious them i imperious them i imperious them i imperious them Anyway, so there, there's that trial. Right. And then the memory fades and it returns to the same room, but there's a bit of a lighter atmosphere. Ludo Bagman is in the chair. He's not chained and he is answering charges to aiding Death Eaters. Bagman essentially claims he was unaware that Rookwood was working for the Death Eaters. And when he was giving him information, he believed that he was collecting it for our side. I just used air quotes there. <laughs> yeah. So the wizards are voting. Harry then realizes that this is like the wizarding council. The judges vote to free Bagman. That makes sense because Bagman, you know, Harry knows him as a free man. Um, Though Moody and Crouch seem annoyed by the verdict. And then again, the memory fades. Right. And this now, this is the reason that like we've seen Winky being like, oh, Mr. Crouch thinks Bagman's a very bad man. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? He's kind of an oaf. Like, So this is the reason that Crouch has not liked Ludo Bagman ever since this, because we know he was super hard on suspected Death Eaters. Right. And so then, which is just like ironic that they end up having to work together. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's almost <laughs> The comedic. memory then fades again. And now it is kind of back to a more heavy atmosphere. There's a witch and three wizards chained before Mr. Crouch, accused of torturing the Aurors, Frank and Alice Longbottom to uncover Voldemort's whereabouts. They are unanimously sentenced to life in Azkaban. And we learn that one of them is the boy, Barty Crouch Jr. Do we see, do we get the names of the other three? Or does I it don't. just say, or does it, do they just no, say? No, just get, it's just a witch and three other wizards. I'm gonna, I'm gonna check. So we know now that this um, that which is bellatrix lestrange it's bella the people in the people on trial in this trial are bellatrix lestrange her husband rodolphus his brother robaston and barty crouch jr 
They are the ones who tortured the Longbottoms to insanity. This is also the first time that Harry is learning about what happened to Neville Longbottom's parents, which Marty, has to be pretty shocking. It, yeah. And I'm, I don't even think he fully grasps it until his later conversation with Dumbledore. Right. Also, um, I want to mention, I think Sirius mentioned in chapter 27 that like, you know, the Lestranges were able to talk their way out of Azkaban the first time, which means Bellatrix and Rodolphus and Rivastin at some point, like, were brought in front of the Wizengamot and probably got off by saying, oh, we were under the Imperious curse, and then were actually convicted when they were brought in a second time after they were caught red-handed torturing the Longbottoms. It wasn't so, like, like people came and like caught them in the act. Just crazy. Very crazy. Yeah. So Barty Crouch Jr. pleads with his father to spare him. Crouch says no, you know, send him away to Azkaban. And Mrs. Crouch is weeping, watching as all of this is going on. So then kind of as this memory is finishing, Dumbledore appears. He grabs onto Harry and he brings Harry back to reality in Hogwarts. He explains that this device this bowl is a pensive pensive and this is where Dumbledore can put his thoughts and his memories that are cramming his mind and sort of cluttering up his brain and when he says something interesting he says when I put things in the the pensive it allows me to see patterns and uncover things in these memories that I would not otherwise be able to see when they're all jumbled up in my head I kind of personally it's not canon but I think that Tom Riddle's diary was a particular different kind of form of it certainly had pensive properties right we know that these are not particularly common this is something that Dumbledore is very skilled particularly in ancient runes and kind of these more complex magical just Medium. mediums right so we don't know that this is the only pensive to exist out there but this is certainly not something that's commonly found in a wizarding home absolutely there is a legend that the pensive was like integral like where they built hogwarts was like they found the pensive on that land and like built hogwarts around it fun fact is that canon i think it's canon from like the author's later writings on wizarding world i'm gonna check my because i always read that dumbledore built the pensive that was no it was there before dumbledore interesting little is known as blah 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 blah, blah. modified with saxon runes Putting its creation well before the founding of Hogwarts, legend has it that the founders of the school found the Pensieve half buried in the ground. This was supposedly one of the reasons the school was located in such a remote location. Interesting. Yeah. And that's from the Wizarding World? This is on the Harry Potter wiki, and the reference from that is the Pensieve article on wizardingworld.com. Yes. Amazing. Well, there you go. The more you know. So uh, anyway, this is where Dumbledore, this is going to be very important as we get through specifically to the last book the pensive is gonna is gonna play a big part so harry kind of apologizes for snooping dumbledore he gives just a classic dumbledore line curiosity is not a sin but requires caution yep and then we get this image coming from the pensive of bertha joyce while she was at hogwarts complaining to dumbledore about a boy that she jinxed and then harry recounts his dream to dumbledore 
And of course, Dumbledore already knows, right? Because he's been communicating with Sirius and this is not information that Sirius would keep from Dumbledore because adults are reasonable and they communicate and they talk with each other. And I think Harry's a little surprised to know that Dumbledore and Sirius have been communicating. The trust that Sirius has put into Dumbledore and the like forgiveness that must have required is pretty astounding after- I have to think he does it because of Harry. Out of necessity, like utilitarian rather than like emotional because Dumbledore could have done more for Sirius. I could even argue that Dumbledore purposely did less for Sirius. So I, I think that Sirius recognizes that Dumbledore's main mission is to keep Harry safe. Now, I don't know that Sirius understands why Dumbledore has to keep Harry so safe because there's he a- do, He definitely does not because if he knew- He would he never would not be it. okay with it, yeah. Right. But I think that he sees that he cannot protect Harry in the way that he wishes he could, you know, to father him, to have them live in the same house, to be there so physically for him. And Dumbledore can. And of course, Sirius doesn't trust Snape, you know, and there's nobody else that- besides Lupin potentially, who is really able to be close enough physically to- And Sin Dumbledore have to have, at least prior to his incarceration, had a pretty good relationship for Dumbledore to want him in the Order of the Phoenix so soon after he graduated along with Lily and James and Remus and Peter. But like they had to have at some point had a really good standing with each other. Right. For Dumbledore to trust him and for Sirius to confide in Dumbledore like that. Yeah, so uh, I, I do think there is a level of forgiveness, but I think that exists purely because it's in Harry's best interest and Sirius would do anything for Harry, um, really his best friend's son. So Dumbledore sort of, he, there's a couple of interesting things I think comes out of this conversation. We always get so much good information that comes out of these Dumbledore-Harry conversations, but we typically don't get it till the end of the book. Right. So now we're kind of getting it just as like the plot they're like debrief is really thickening yeah <laughs> they're like they're like yearly annual debrief dumbledore tells harry he doesn't think these dreams are coincidental and that he believes harry's scar hurts whenever voldemort is near whenever he's getting stronger feeling strong emotions you know harry had said he never saw voldemort explicitly in the dreams but that is because voldemort at this time still lacks a body Mm-hmm. which kind of tells you that Dumbledore knows what Voldemort is searching for. And that is searching for a host for his spirit to be living in. Right. We learned that in the first wizarding wars, Voldemort was ascending to power and, you know, growing stronger. It was sort of marked by these unexplained disappearances. And once again, those things are happening. Bertha Jorkins, Barty Crouch Sr. and Frank Bryce the Muggle. So Dumbledore believes they are linked, but as Harry just had walked into this conversation with Cornelius Fudge and Dumbledore and Imposter Moody, the ministry does not or refuses to accept in an official way that these things are happening because that would have to, that would mean having to admit that there's something that they can't control going on. Right, um, the of that are bad for the ministry. Cornelius Fudge is a politician, 100% all the way. Yeah. So then... You know, Harry gets more background information about Neville's parents, that they were tortured until they went insane and now permanently reside in St. Mungo's. And that's why Neville has been raised by his grandma. Dumbledore asserts again that he trusts Snape fully and completely, that he's not been involved in anything dark. 
since the end of the war and Dumbledore kind of leaves Harry with the notion to please not say anything, not even to Ron and Hermione about Neville because that's Neville's story to tell. Yeah, rightly so. And Neville will tell that story in mm-hmm. in the next book. Yep. Oh, it's getting good. I've been saying that for like the last three episodes. It's all good. This one is very interesting and very, for the most part, very intricately woven together. Right. Yeah. Um, Except for that metric, that mention of Bellatrix. They <laughs> hate it. And I think worth noting in, in the memory of Bellatrix and you know, them all being on trial, she doesn't defend herself. She doesn't, she pledges allegiance to Voldemort. And that is so true to who we are going to know Bellatrix to be. She's such a loyalist. She's a, would you say she's a three? No, we said she was a six, right? Like a really unhealthy six. Yeah, that is what we said. I would, I'll stick with that. Yeah. I'm going to look and see if we know if she's actually, father, I wasn't involved. Does it say like Bellatrix Lestrange? No, yeah. And once again, in this entire conversation, Dumbledore could be like, oh yes, you saw that thing. That's Bellatrix Lestrange. That's Sirius's cousin. Yeah, but no. That's that's Draco's auntie. Dearest, auntie dearest. Anyway, next week we will pick up with the third task and everything that comes along with that. And we're almost, we're really nearing the I actually think if we do four chapters next week, which we may or may not. We'll see what we get to. If we do four chapters next week. We'll be done. We're and done. Boom. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, just kidding. We have, we'll have two more episodes. Two more two episodes. Two more episodes on Goblet of Fire. And then you get your film episode. We always love doing the film episodes. We have a lot of people to cast. I know. I have to start thinking about oh, it. Gee- um, Trying to think about how I'm going to beat Aaron this movie. I, I don't remember who. I got to go back and look who won for what our standing is after a uh, Prisoner of Azkaban. Incredible. We'll go see. Anyway. This is been the Daily Profcast, and we'll see you next week, probably. Hey, thanks for listening to our latest episode. As always, please subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. And if you're not a listener on Apple Podcasts, it would still help us out a lot if you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. If you have any questions, comments, concerns about anything you heard in this episode today, please drop us a line at our Anchor profile. You can leave us a nifty little voice message there, or you can head to our Instagram at the Daily Profcast to DM us or leave us an email. Thank you.